0: The Old Testament reading today is from 2 Samuel 6, verses 12b to 22a. So David went up to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of the Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today! going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. This is the word of the Lord.
1: The New Testament reading this morning is from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord.
2: The book of 2 Samuel. Check out the video on 1 Samuel where we were introduced to the book's three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David, and then also to the book's literary design, which first introduced Samuel and then traced the rise and fall of King Saul in contrast to the rise of King David. 2 Samuel tells the story of David as Israel's king and in two movements. There's a season of success and a blessing followed by a huge moral failure and then its sad consequences. And then the the book ends with this well-crafted conclusion that reflects back on the good and the bad in David's life, generating hope for a future king to come from his line. So Second Samuel picks up after Saul's death and David surprises everyone by composing this long poem where he laments the death of the very man who tried to murder him. And so once again, the author, he's presenting David's humility and compassion. He's a man who grieves the death even of his own enemies. After this, David experiences a season of success and God's blessing. All of the Israelite tribes, they come to David and then they ask him to unify all the tribes as their king. And So the first thing David does as king is to go to the city of Jerusalem, he conquers it and he establishes it as Israel's capital city which he renames as Zion. And from there David goes on and he wins many battles and expands Israel's territory. Now after making Jerusalem the political capital of Israel, he wants to make it their religious capital as well. And so he has the Ark of the Covenant moved into the city. And then in 2nd Samuel 7, he tells God, now that Israel has a permanent home, he thinks that God's presence should also get a permanent house. So he asks if he can build a temple for the God of Israel. But God says to David, thank you for that thought, but actually I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. Now 2 Samuel 7. This is a key chapter for understanding the storyline of the whole Bible. Because God here makes a promise to David that from his royal line will come a future king who's going to build God's temple here on earth and set up an eternal kingdom. And it's this messianic promise to David that gets picked up and developed more in the book of Psalms and also in the books of the prophets. And it's this king that gets connected to God's promise to Abraham. The future messianic kingdom will be how God brings his blessing to all of the nations and it's right here in the midst of all this divine blessing that things go horribly wrong David makes a fatal mistake not fatal for him but for a man named Uriah one of David's prized soldiers so from his rooftop David sees Uriah's wife Bathsheba bathing David finds her he sleeps with her gets her pregnant and then he tries to cover the whole thing up by having Uriah assassinated and then marrying her it's just horrible So when David's confronted by the prophet Nathan about all of this, he immediately owns up to what he's done. He's broken, he repents, he asks God to forgive him and God does forgive him but God doesn't erase the consequences of David's decisions. And so as a result of this horrible choice, David's family, his kingdom, it all falls apart and it makes this section a tragic story much like Saul's downfall. So David's sons end up repeating his own mistakes, but in even more tragic ways. So Amnon sexually abuses his sister, Tamar. And then their brother, Absalom, finds out about all of this and has Amnon assassinated. And then Absalom goes and he hatches the secret plan to oust his father David from power and he launches this full-scale rebellion. And so for a second time, David is forced to flee from his own home and go hide in the wilderness. Except this time he is not an innocent man. The rebellion ends when David's son is murdered, when it breaks David's heart. And so once again he laments over the very man who tried to kill him. David's last days find him back on his throne, but as a broken man, he's wounded by the sad consequences of his sin. The book concludes with a well-crafted epilogue with stories that are out of chronological order, but they have this really cool symmetrical literary design. So the outer pair of stories come from earlier in David's reign and they compare the failures of Saul and then of David and how each of them hurt other people through their bad decisions. The next inner pair of stories are about David and his band of mighty men who went about fighting the Philistines. And what's interesting is that both sections have a story of David's weakness in battle. So in contrast to the victorious David of chapters 1 through 9, here we see a vulnerable David who's dependent on others for help. The center of the epilogue has two poems that act like memoirs and David reflects back on his life. And he remembers times when God graciously rescued him from danger. And he sees these as moments where God was faithful to his covenant promise to him and to his family. Both poems conclude by looking back onto the hope of God's promise of a future king who will build that eternal kingdom. Now these poems, and then God's promise, also connect back to Hannah's poem that opened the book. And so these key passages from the beginning, now the middle, and the end of the book bring the book's themes all together. Despite Saul and David's evil God remained at work moving forward his redemptive purposes and God opposed David and Saul's arrogance but he exalted David when he humbled himself. And so the future hope of this book reaches far beyond David himself. It looks to the future to the messianic king who will one day bring God's kingdom and blessing to all of the nations and that's what the book of Samuel is all about.
3: Good morning, friends, and here we go. Uh, Second Samuel. Uh, we continue on in our people of the book, years through the Bible series, and um, you know we kind of mixed up the order of things for Advent and for Christmas season, and then last week Jen took us back uh, to where we had left off in 1 Samuel, and today we're in Second Samuel chapter six, looking specifically at the story of. David dancing before the ark of the Lord with wild abandon. And uh, as we look at the story, I want to, to, yeah, to walk us through this story in three movements. Uh, Three acts, if you will. Three acts, if you will. Act one, priority. Act two, vulnerability. Act three, awe. And, uh, you know, one way to think about this is a simple math formula. Priority plus vulnerability equals awe. So let's jump in. Um, David dancing with all of his might before the ark of the Lord. Uh, this for many of us is a well-known story. I've got memories, uh, as a kid hearing it in Sunday school, you know, watching it on the, the VHS Bible story tapes we had around our house. Uh, but it, it really wasn't until this week that I came to, um, appreciate this story in its greater context and to, to recognize just how incredible it is, uh, that David is able to prioritize worship of Yahweh uh, in the midst of all the the intense pressure that he's under. For some reason, you know, growing up or or in the hearing of past sermons, I've heard uh, of this text. I've always imagined it as, um, you know, David is just in this kind of state of, Sunny day, easy-go-lucky, you know, let's celebrate uh, as if there's not a care in the world. Uh, and if you zoom out just a little bit, even, you start to see uh, that this is uh, a seminal moment in Israel's history. Uh, this this incredible moment of great pressure in David's own life. And again, that just makes it all the more striking. Um how he's able to uh, turn to God and worship, uh, even even in the trial um, that this moment is. Um, this comes at a point. In fact, this this very story is, you might say, the point at which uh, Israel is transitioning from, you know, what up until now has has been. Uh, an identity and a reality of being what Walter Burgman calls um, a marginal company of unstable tribes uh, to becoming a, a centralized monarchy state in its own right. Uh, the story, as we've gone so far, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, now Samuel, is... Uh, Israel has been this wandering tribe, this almost nomadic tribe, uh, you know, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, housing God's, Yahweh's very presence. And here is the moment, this procession is them carrying this Ark of the Covenant into what will be its, you know, it is to be its permanent home uh, in and and in doing so, what will establish this this city of Jerusalem as the royal city of this new nation, and uh, and will legitimize David as the monarch, the king of this young nation. And so it's this huge. It's hard to overstate what a transition from going this this marginal, unstable network of tribes to. Uh, uh, a nation state in its own right and, and all the, you know, bureaucracy and everything that goes with that. This was a, a huge, uh, huge transition uh, for Israel socially, politically, militarily, religiously. And David in, in walking his people through this transition is under intense pressure from all sides you know, there, there were the people who uh, were sort of the the old timers or the people who uh, held in highest values the, the the old tradition, the old ways of doing things that uh, were not at all happy about these innovations that were happening. And then on the other side, he, he's got, you know, the, the people who are pushing for change and, and yet not all of them are happy with with. The speed of change, or or perhaps they have different ideas of what change should look like than what David is bringing about. Uh, even his own wife is, of course, not very supportive. Uh, we you know get this this picture of later that evening him home with with his wife Michael, and the way that she uh, you know dripping with sarcasm uh, just attacks. Uh, attacks his his uh, behavior that day and um, yeah I've come for the first time to appreciate that it's under this great pressure this this moment of trial that David has the instinct uh, to not put all that aside but but in the midst of it all to allow himself to come into God's presence and worship the Lord with abandon. And I, I came to realize that that David doesn't surrender himself so fully, so beautifully in, in this moment because life is so good. Uh, but perhaps David throws himself so completely into God's presence in this moment because life is so hard. One of the the commentators um, on this chapter used the phrase, said this is a liminal space in Israel's history. And I looked up the word liminal, Uh, you know, that it means a a sort of crossing over, a being uh, halfway into one space and still half in the other. Uh, The word liminal is Latin actually for threshold, so it has to do with the crossing of a threshold. And, uh, you know, I thought about all the ways that the, the reality that we find ourselves in here, late January 2021. Uh, we are very much uh, crossing, uh, you might even say stuck in a moment of threshold uh I, I heard someone recently describe what life feels like right now is uh, she said it's like we're we're stuck like an airplane stuck in this holding pattern uh, that that we just have to keep circling and circling as we wait for for space at the airport below that will allow us to land. The season of of circling, of waiting, we you know, we're halfway out of this pandemic now. We, we've got a vaccine and it's getting into people's arms. Some of you have gotten at least the first shot. Some of you the second already. And yet we are not quite into life beyond this pandemic. And uh, more than anything else, this, this text for me personally, and I think for us as a church is, uh, is inviting us um might even say that the through god is calling us in the in the midst of all of this trial and the moment of pressure and the exhaustion that so many of us feel uh to prioritize meeting with god uh it's a call back to the basics uh you know, in, in getting the the Ark of the Covenant out, I hadn't realized that the Ark at this point had been sort of shelved, forgotten about in someone's home for 20 years. Uh, we hadn't heard about it since back in 1 Samuel, you know, chapter 6. And, uh, you know, Brueggemann again says, uh, in, in bringing out the, the Ark of Yahweh, David is... Uh, you know, bringing out the taproot of Israel's religious vitality. Jesus, uh, you know, similar uh, metaphor says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And uh, in the hardship and again, the tiredness of this moment, uh, more than anything else, um, I hope you are hearing in this a call, a call to worship, a call to meet with God, a call to prayer. Um, it's easy to lose that habit in the midst of all this threshold change. Um, and we could talk about threshold change, you know, as a church um, and the disorientation of, of uh you know, Jen and I were in the church basement recently and looking at the renovation, and she she said, "I don't even know where I am right now." Um, there's such disorientation in these threshold moments, um, politically, right? I, the 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 two weeks between the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th and the inauguration, we witnessed this past Wednesday on January 20th. Uh, That that turnover in leadership was this very unstable uh, feeling threshold moment Um, that that many of us on both sides of the aisle, you know, after the inauguration on Wednesday and it and it's going down peacefully, we're able to take this deep breath and and feel like, okay, we've made it through at least one important threshold moment. Um, So priority uh the call of god to prioritize uh communion with god even in the midst of the chaos and uh uncertainty around us act two vulnerability um you know david to be sure uh you know had his his failures and um And his sin is dark. Uh, And we we need to not lose sight of that or minimize that. Um, And yet at the same time, Scripture describes him as a man after God's own heart. And and, uh, there's so many things about who David is and the way that he lives that uh, are to be held up as models for us um, in our own relationship with God. Uh, there's no half measures with this guy. David is whatever he does all in for good or for bad. He is all in. And um, I think a part of what makes David so special and, and such a charismatic and attractive figure to so many of us, uh, what makes him so fascinating is, uh, well, the realism with with which he's he's portrayed Um but also just his his openness to, to Yahweh, to, to, to others. I think of his love, his deep love for Jonathan. Um, his heart is wide open before the Lord, and this scene of him just you know is actually a, a physical embodiment of this openness. His his wild dancing in such a way that you know, he's confronted later in the day for, for not acting in such a way that's befitting a king. Uh, you know, when Michael, his wife, confronts him for, for how embarrassing he is in his dancing, he responds by simply saying, I will become even more undignified than this. And, you know, I think a lot about vulnerability. I've been thinking a lot about vulnerability yeah, especially through this pandemic and um, probably has to do with, you know, listening to Brene Brown podcasts. I know a number of you are fans of Brene Brown, writer, uh, researcher, uh, you know, he does work um, on shame and vulnerability and writes books and does a lot of public speaking. Uh, you know, it it's interesting holding her definition of vulnerability up to what I find in the dictionary. The dictionary says a vulnerability describes it as the quality or state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked or harmed either physically or emotionally. Uh, an example is con artists are great at spotting our vulnerabilities. So, you know, when you hear it like that, the state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked, uh, it doesn't sound very attractive. Like, would want that why would you want more vulnerability in your life why would you want to work towards being more vulnerable Um, but a part of uh, you know Brene Brown's work uh, she she holds that you know that that same element to it she says vulnerability does necessarily have uncertainty risk and emotional exposure there's no way around that Uh, but she says you know Vulnerability is is the center and the birthplace of love and belonging and authenticity, creativity, courage, and accountability. Um you can protect yourself from getting hurt by putting enough walls up around yourself that, that you keep everyone out. Um, and that will save you some pain. But there's no way to, to put these walls up and keep out all the the potential pain in the world without also keeping out all that is good in the world. Uh, you know, this whole christianity thing is at root about relationship um and that's necessarily so because the god who we worship the jesus we follow uh the spirit who dwells in us so intimately this is a god who is within god's self community and and who made us uh with a desire to relate to us uh the christian faith at its core is about a relationship with a God who is alive and who loves us and who longs to know us and to be known by us. And uh, you can't have any relationship without vulnerability. Relationship, by definition, requires vulnerability. Um you know, sometimes I talk to people, who, I've heard people in the church say, you know, I've been in our small group for a few years now, and I don't know, I, I like the people, but even after a few years, I feel like we don't really know each other. And I don't really actually feel close, you know, that close to anyone in the, in our small group. And it's interesting, you know, I might ask, well, have you, have you shared with that group? you know, everything you just told me about this, you know, your struggle with depression right now and um, just everything that's going on for you. And they'll say, no, you know, I haven't shared that. Um, And maybe, you know, maybe there's good reason for that. Maybe they they haven't come to be convinced that, you know, this is a safe group uh, and and to be sure it's unwise to be vulnerable, to put your heart out there uh, when, you know, before people who uh, you haven't come to know are trustworthy just yet. Uh, But at the same time, you know, to really feel close to anyone, uh, you have to allow yourself to be seen. And they have to allow you to see them. These walls need to come down again, Brene Brown, in her book, The Power of Vulnerability says to be vulnerable is to allow ourselves to be seen. And, uh, you know, you can, you know, all of this is not just true of human relationships. This is of course true of our relationship with God. Um, unless you, you let God into, uh, you know, all the, the, the spaces of our lives that we so easily wall off from God's presence and transforming love. Unless you let God in, you will not ever feel close to God in any sort of real way. You won't enjoy the, the sweet peace uh, that comes from allowing yourself to just be held in the loving arms of the one who invites you to call him father. Uh, And you can show up to church, whether in person or, or, you know, you can even watch these videos each week. You can even go through the motions of church and so many of the disciplines throughout the week. You can show up without ever really showing up, uh, and so I, I invite you to think about what might it look like In what ways might you have walls up uh, spaces in your in your life that you haven't let yet let God uh, into? What might it look like for you to just radically throw yourself with abandon into God's presence in the way that David does? Uh yeah, a few of these walls, and you know, we could talk about this for a long time. Maybe this is another sermon, but um, you know, some of these walls that I so often see, just in you know, conversations with a number of you in pastoral care moments, uh, walls of grief. I heard someone recently, you know, talk about a grief that's uh, that's been festering for four or five years, uh, and it was interesting. She said, "I'm afraid to allow myself to grieve." Because if I let myself start crying, I don't know if I'll be able to stop. And so much of this gets into control, and our our you know as as competent modern people, our need for control and vulnerability by definition is a surrender of control. Uh, to love and to let yourself be loved is a, a loss of control. I heard one parent describe. Uh, Having kids is—it's uh, like having your heart just be out there so vulnerably, uh, and there's no other way around it. There's no way to—there's to, no shortcut that can get around that. And so, what might it look like if you hold some some grief, to surrender that control, to let yourself go in God's presence, to weep and to cry and to trust? The goodness of God to carry you through that um, hope. What might it look like for you to allow yourself to hope, to hope that a part of your life that has been the same for so many years uh, to allow yourself to believe that that can change? Um, maybe that's the, a family dynamic, or a marriage, or a parent relationship, or or a work situation. Uh, what might it look like to, to allow yourself to believe that God can actually transform and change us um, to risk that, that hope What might it look like? Uh, Yeah. So often I see the, you know, walls around relationships, people who, you know, I am all about forgiveness. Yes, Jesus, we should forgive our enemies except this person in my life that I'm not willing to let God into that relationship. Um, So often I think that's, you know, people afraid that to do that would be to, to, to be saying, to be condoning what they did. Uh, which actually isn't the case. When you forgive someone, you you name the wrong that they they harmed you as as wrong, but you go a step further and and also say, "But I choose to no longer hold it against you. I lay that down, and and in doing so, you you're also choosing to set yourself free from from uh, the hold that." that that relationship continues to have on you um, and will have on you until you let that wall down and let the love of God transform that part of your life. Uh, maybe it's a relationship that you need to let go of and you know you need to let go of, um, or you know you just need the courage to do that. What might it look like to let God into that space, to let truth and to let courage um, and health into that space? Uh, maybe it's yeah, letting yourself be seen in relationship. I think of a friend's dad who's who's never said to his family, I'm sorry, or I love you. Um, maybe it means in, in the small group or, or in a certain friendship, risking the vulnerability of being honest about what's going on in your life. Um, what might it look like to lay that down? To, to name and acknowledge, uh, and deal with maybe a sin or or addiction that has plagued you for far too long, something that you know deep down is a problem, but that you haven't yet brought yourself to being able to confess and to, to turn to another and to, to say aloud, I need help and uh, I need accountability with this, and to take the step of getting the help you need and and Again, to let the love of God just fill all these parts of your life. And we could go on and on. Your bank account, maybe. You know, oh, I'll serve God. I'll volunteer. I'll do all these things. But I will not trust my finances to God. I'm going to do that my own way, even though I know I'm called to something else. What might it look like for you to, to invite God into that space? And and to find not only does God, uh, you know, bless you and blessing others through how you steward that money um just so generously but um how god at the same time might be setting you free from an anxiety about money that uh that maybe you aren't even yet a real real uh, aware of and realize uh has such a, a hold on you um anyway your future what might it look like to allow god into your future plans your hopes your dreams um or maybe to allow God in your future and, uh, and accepting the way things are and letting go of, of a hope or a dream. But, but to invite God into that space, whatever it looks like. Um, okay. One last one. Identity. Uh, what might it look like to invite God into our, our deepest fears and, uh, The lies that we so often believe about ourselves, that we are worthless, that we aren't doing enough, that we aren't good enough, that we don't deserve good things. What might it look like to lay those walls down and to uh, to dance before the Lord with abandon and total openness to the spirit's movement in us? Okay. Priority, vulnerability, last but not least, awe. And again, again, priority plus vulnerability equals awe. So awe isn't so much, you know, a a third thing we do. I mean, it's something we experience that that you might say is is active. But I think of it more as a fruit of these first two. To show up and to open up will lead to an experience of God, Uh, maybe not right away, but but will lead to an experience of God that is full of wonder and of awe. Um, yeah, just a couple stories and I'll wrap up here. I, I will never forget the morning Oscar was born, December 15th, 2013. He was born at Gerber Hospital in Fremont, Michigan and, uh, you know, this was, we'd gone in on Friday and it was almost two days later, uh, you know, after a long night of labor that uh, Oscar is born, our first child and just, uh, anyway, in the moments afterwards, Jen really needed bacon and the hospital, uh, you know, for all the like processed food they had on the menu, um, drew a line for some reason at bacon so uh you know I was calling around and and found a restaurant in town that I could order a few orders of bacon um I want to say it's because I was such a good guy but the truth is uh it had more to do with the look I got from Jen after when she first asked for bacon uh I said I am really tired (laughs) you can imagine the look after 21 hours of labor like you're tired you're going to tell me you're tired anyway so moments later i'm driving around getting bacon for my wife and uh i remember it was a sunny you know december morning and it had just snowed overnight and it felt like, you know, my memory of it is like everything was just brighter. I don't know if it was actually the sun reflecting off the snow, but even, even more than I've ever seen that. And, uh, there was, I, I just had this ecstasy of having just become a father, having seen this, this, this baby come into the world that, that sort of looked like me and sort of looked like Jen and just, to, to open its mouth and cry and to hold it. And uh, it was just this awesome experience. And I remember, I'll never forget just, you know, I, I got to this breakfast diner and I'm, I'm waiting for them to go back and get my carryout order bacon. And I'll never forget looking around the restaurant and being struck by uh, how everyone else was just going, about their day as if it was a normal day, and I was like, "What is wrong with these people? Like a miracle just happened." And of course, for everyone else, it was just this normal day. And yet, uh, you know, even though I've I've struggled to see the world in that way every day since then, I in that moment was catching a glimpse of reality. That you know those those others who were just kind of going about their their normal day uh, were not seeing the world as it was, but um, the reality of this this universe that we live in, and the reality of each one of us living in these bodies is awesome wonder, and all of life is is holy ground. And, uh, you know, sometimes in worship, uh, we, we catch glimpses of, of who God is in such a way that we're able to see God's presence in us and around us and, and in all things. And it is a powerful, awesome moment when that happens. Um, it's, it's crazy to me, you know, that, that we describe cynics sometimes as realist. Because the reality is that could be furthest from the truth. Paul tells us in First Corinthians 13 that now we see, but dimly, as though through a darkened glass. And if we take that seriously, we you know, we should be a little bit more aware that that it's in these rare moments when we we catch a flash of the divine that we're actually seeing the world as it is. Uh, there's a line from Jen's got some poetry on the, on our wall here. And, uh, this poem by Richard Wilbur, uh, about Kina's wedding feast, where he says this, um, this is in the middle of the poem, but which is to say that what love sees is true, that this world's fullness is not made, but found life hungers to abound and pour its plenty out for such as you. What love sees is true, that this world's fullness is not made but found. What if everything, uh, all of your deepest longings are actually right around you and with you right now in this very moment in God's very presence in your life. And, and the, the great challenge of life is not so much to, to find, uh, not so much to, to, to create that, to make that, but to find it already with us. And uh, the only response uh, left at the end of the day when we catch these glimpses is simply, wow, 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 and holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. The only thing left to do is to dance in celebration of the wonder of who God is. Let's pray. God, uh, you call us. Uh, In this season, in January of 2021, uh, Pandemic Part 2, you call us to worship. You call us to prayer. You call us to kneel before you and open ourselves in every part of our lives to your transforming love. And you invite us into wonder and awe and even joy in this hard, hard season. Lord, uh, my prayer for all the people of Sherman Street and anyone else who might be watching or listening to this today, that they would heed that call, that they would stop and open themselves to you. In Jesus' name, all God's people prayed. Amen. Let me bless you. (laughs) May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each and every one of you today and forevermore. Amen.